Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and welcome to episode six of the Fly Past podcast. I'm Han Sebo from Kiero and uh, something a bit different this week. I am joined by writer and aviation historian Paul Crickmore. Hi, Paul. How's it going? Yeah, it's going well, thanks, Hans. Yeah, how is yourself? Uh, uh, I'm all right, actually. A, a little break from homeschooling doing this. So this is. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping that this podcast will last for roughly around eight hours. If you can, <laughs> if you can, if you can, uh, if you can make that happen, that would be I great. I understand why you would want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> now, Paul, uh, let me just give people a bit of background if they don't know who you are. Now, you. Um, one of the things you've done recently, you co-wrote a book called "To Defeat the Few." The Luftwaffe's campaign to destroy RAF Fighter Command, August to September 1940, by Osprey Publishing. That's correct, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. And you, um, you co-wrote this with um, with a chap called Douglas C. Dildy. Now he can't be here because he's in America, isn't he? Yeah, he's sunning himself in Albuquerque. Lucky thing. Yeah. Well, I, I think you know, in in a way, wouldn't it be funny to uh, call him in the middle of the night and wake him up? <laughs> <laughs> how, do you, how do you think he'd take that? <laughs> Actually, knowing Doug, he'd be absolutely fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's um, let's talk a bit about the book. It's a fascinating book. Um, essentially, this it kind of um, takes the Battle of Britain from a completely fresh perspective, doesn't it? I mean, you're looking at it um, from you know the Germans' perspective, and there's been a, you've obviously undertaken a huge study of um, German records to. Uh, you know, study the battle through the Luftwaffe's eyes, haven't you? I mean, what was the kind of reason and inspiration, you know, an idea behind doing this? Yeah, okay. Well, it's quite interesting. So uh, going back to sort of autumn in uh, 2016, my wife Ali and I were uh, up in Boston, Massachusetts with uh, Doug and his lovely wife, uh, Annie, looking at the fall up there. And as is always the case when he and I get together, you know, the matters invariably turn to aviation. and. Uh, we got chatting away. Doug, I should say, uh, is a retired US Air Force uh, colonel and an ex F-15 pilot. And one of the reoccurring subjects that fascinated us both was the Battle of Britain. Um, it's particularly noteworthy, I think, not only because the future of our nation sort of hung in the balance, but it was also history's first offensive counter-air campaign, and it was fought against the world's first integrated air defence system. So... As our discussions uh, continued, you know, we both sort of started to realise that all of the information about that titanic uh, air struggle was pretty well based upon facts that were very British-centric. I, I guess, you know, the, the victor gets to write the history. Um, and uh, you know, the, the Luftwaffe, at the end of the day, you know, uh, they were the aggressors. They were calling the shots, leaving the RAF defenders to respond to, to those initiatives. And so when we got back home to our respective homes, you know, obviously there's a vast amount of, of material that's been written about that incredibly um, important um, battle. But we were surprised at how little information had actually come from the Germans' side. In fact, um, you know, the RAF uh, historical branch's boss back in 1944, T.C.G. James, I think it was, uh, wrote a preface in his history on the battle where he actually noted that the, the reader should bear in mind, and I'll quote, that there is much information about the Battle of Britain that is yet uncertain and details and reliable information 
and authoritative explanations are still not available. So, <laughs> you know, taking that as sort of, um, you know, the, the bottom line, if you like, um, that seemed, seemed to be that a lot of that information um, of out there hadn't actually been referenced back to what James himself was looking at or talking about. And Doug was aware of um, a collection of 42 volumes that make up what's known as the Karlsruhe Collection. And that's written by former, what was then, surviving high-ranking Luftwaffe officers from 1952 to 1958. And that information is stored at the U.S. Air Force Historical Research Agency at Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama. So, you know, this was, was quite a... Um, a, a gleeful find, I and mean, we were sort of quite fired up by the discoveries. As uh, uh, Doug hightailed it over there for a week. In fact, uh, he has one of the um, researchers there that um, you know he um, he knows very very well. And um, pouring through this information, and I could have headed off to the National Archives and also um, over to Northolt to um, you know the RAF um, uh, research um, establishment there and. Uh, it was it was it was quite uh, eye opening, uh, and we both got very excited about it. And we thought, well, we would get in touch with Osprey, and and they said, well, submit us a, uh, a synopsis. So we put together what we thought would be like I'm um, looking at probably about a hundred thousand word book about the Luftwaffe. It was about the Battle of Britain from the Luftwaffe's perspective, but we also wanted to write it as uh, an operational level of warfare. And we used over 300 images, including rare color images, to tell the story at the tactical level. So sort of a picture, if you like, being worth a thousand words. And perhaps even more controversially, we wanted to use some, some of the best, what we think are the best digital color artists around to colorize half of the image contents. So, you know, um, Marcus Cowper, our uh, editor, gave us the thumbs up and, yeah, 14 chapters and um, including two sort of sidebars or vignettes in each chapter, uh, each one sort of covering a, a key personality and a weapon system. And, uh, yeah, the book was launched about June or July of, uh, of last year in 2020, um, so basically in time for the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. What were you, you know, how surprised were you when you started, you know, digging into this stuff at, you know, this information that, you know, no one had really discovered yet? Well, we were interested. I mean, it's, you know, been there and it's, um, you know, uh, <laughs> available to the public. Um, uh, I guess um, it, it's a, it's a lot to ask, um, you know, the, the poor struggling uh, researcher writer to go over to the States and spend a fair amount of time, uh, you know, burrowing through this vast amount of information is kind of a, a, a big ask. Big advantage to us, of course, was Doug being American, you know, lived just down the road or a couple of states anyway. <laughs> from uh, Alabama, uh, and and so th th you know that that you know was uh, quite significant by way of a cost base because you know at the end of the day we all well virtually all of us do this because of the love of the subject rather than thinking you know we're going to make vast amounts of money and have a, a Learjet waking waiting uh, at the beck and call of us uh, you know as a result. <laughs> you so, should you you need to insist on that stuff you know when I you sign the should. deal. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the, that's that's the thing. No, I mean, look, you know, the Battle of Britain, you know, as you alluded to, has been written about endlessly, hasn't it? And I suppose, like anything that is written about so extensively, there are always kind of inaccuracies that just seem to kind of get embedded in our psyches a little bit. Yeah. I mean, did you, you know, were you sort of deliberately setting out to? Uh, to challenge some of the things about mm. the Battle of Britain that we've come to accept. Yeah, that's a very good point. <clears throat> I wouldn't say we were out to challenge. We certainly weren't revisionists uh, in any way, shape or form. Yeah, in fact, both of us would tell you outright, you know, the, the Nazi regime was, you know, the most repugnant um, of organisations run by a team of murderers and gangsters. So there's no way we wanted to glorify in any way, shape or form what they did. And neither did we want to belittle, you know, what those 18 to, what, 25, 30-year-olds uh, were doing as they clambered aboard the Spitfires, Hurricanes, and, and let's not forget the Bolton and Paul Defiance, uh, to go up and, and, and take on these hordes. Um, we certainly didn't want to <clears throat> belittle that. So I would say perhaps we just wanted to try and get a more evenly balanced account um, uh, yeah, to see, you know, what made the, the, the Luftwaffe tick. So, I mean, what are some of the misconceptions about the Battle of Britain? Yeah, um, well, I, first off, there's a bit of a misunderstanding, shall we say, with um, quite a few researchers um, about canal camp, um, which means channel battles. And very typically, the, um, many historians would say that that was sort of the represented the beginning, if you like, of, of, of the battle. But, uh, you know, the research from the German documents um, quickly determined that actually it wasn't part of the Battle of Britain per se. Uh, it was an independent maritime air campaign, which was stem, stemming from a, a different strategy altogether, a strategy which the Germans known, knew, knew as a Handelskrieg, uh, meaning trade war. Uh, and so this was something that the Luftwaffe were conducting in association with the U-boats. Um, was um, about anti-shipping strikes um, on our ports and on our shipping to uh, strangle the sea-borne lifelines and, and hopefully force Britain to seek an armistice. Uh, and it was one actually of just six strategic options that Hitler considered in June 1940 for bringing in a, about an end uh, of of the war um, with with the British, um, I mean, uh, that's perhaps a point of interest. The others were a, a diplomatic solution. I mean, in his harebrained schemes, he honestly believed, having you know put under the jackboot half of um, half of Europe, he could go and and get some kind of backroom deal with Winston Churchill. Well, you know that shows um, shows the man up for what for what he was, and completely had no in, you know, understanding of really the, the British psyche. Um, another option was a, an independent approach uh, that entailed uh, conducting military operations against Malta, Gibraltar and Suez to cut off the shorter supply routes into Britain from the Middle East and our Far East possessions. Uh, terror bombing, that was another um, uh, option that Hitler reserved as a last resort. Uh, and he also uh, thought about maybe just consolidating Germany's defences, you know, hunkering down. Um, uh, putting up the um, uh, the Atlantic Wall on uh, on his western flank, um, and just you know forgetting about Britain, which realistically is something that Hitler would would never really do. 
And the only other option after that was a direct assault, which meant a cross-channel invasion of Britain, Operation Sea Lion. And to implement that plan, he would need air supremacy, um, certainly air superiority, but ideally air supremacy over the beachheads uh, once the armies established themselves in order then to spring forward uh, into our country. And so once you're really into the research, you know, can you give me a sort of a sense of um, you know, some, some of this some of this archive material that you were that you were reading, and what kind of what kind of you know sense did you get did you get from it? Uh, well, as I say, uh, yeah, these were pretty much the memoirs of the senior Luftwaffe um, officers um, who were filling in the gaps at the operational uh, level of um, which meant basically turning um, a strategy. Uh, into a way of achieving um, that strategy. Uh, and also, um, they, were, um, they enabled um, Doug particularly to, uh, to get access to uh, you know, the daily situation reports as well, which were also in there. So by correlating that and uh, what was also available, um, uh, the, uh, the good guys at, um, at RAF Northolt, um, um, we were able to get a, a, a very accurate picture of what the Germans set out to do and what they actually achieved by, you know, uh, dovetailing uh, the reports, the RAF reports, in, into that day's um, operations. What about the RAF tactics? I mean, they were sort of, you know, you know, so, some people have described them as a little bit ancient. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's true. I, I mean. <laughs> And that, that is really such a, a, a sad thing to get your, your head around. Um, uh, the, the, a typical sort of squadron, if you will, is basically a RAF squadron, a 12 aircraft um, formation split into uh, sections of three. So in a section of three, you'd have a lead and you'd have two wingmen. So that meant that in, effectively you had one shooter per three aircraft on initial contact. The Germans, as we knew, flew a, a much more fluid finger four, which would split into a deuce. Um, so you'd have one lead and one wingman. Uh, so you had 1.5 shooters, if the Germans had, compared to one shooter, if you like, within an RAF formation. Uh, and quite interestingly, um, that turned into um, a loss rate, which was one RAF fighter, um, sorry, 1.7 RAF fighters to every one Messerschmitt that was shot down. So the number of shooters seemed almost to give a correlation between the actual losses. Uh, and to us, uh, you know, very easy, of course, sitting back uh, over 80 years later, sort of to ask the question, well, the Hurricane and the Spitfire, you know, both very able aircraft indeed. Why one, the tactics just split. You weren't looking at having to devise, um, you know, a brand new weapon system. Let's just adopt a more fluid uh, way of fighting, which in fairness, the RF squadrons that deployed to France did. Uh, the Hurricane uh, units that went over there soon realized that uh, maintaining you know, these very close formations that the RAF had perfected, uh, particularly during the interwar years, just uh, when it came to um, 
you know, a, a fight situation were not adequate for the reason I've already stated. You know, you're losing the number of shooters for a start and uh, your wingmen are more concerned with avoiding a mid-air collision uh, with one another than keeping a sharp eye out. You've obviously um, uh, started talking about uh, the, some of the aircraft. Uh, obviously, we have to uh, we have to go into uh, to that, don't we, on the Flypast podcast? Um, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so talk talk a little bit about um, you know some of the aeroplanes involved. Uh, well, quite just mentioned in passing the Spitfire, the Hurricane, and of course the poor old Boltman Paul uh, Defiant. Uh, quite interesting, really. I mean. Um, the Spitfire um, and, and Hurricane, very much a point defense system, um, eight-gun um, monoplane. Uh, the concept really um, behind it being that um, it was thought that they would be fighting against bombers because German fighters didn't have the range from German airfields to get across and escort the bombers. Hence, they would be looking at yeah, the BF-110 but certainly not the 109s. And that indeed was one of the reasons for Hitler invading uh, France and the Low Countries to provide bases from which fighters could operate in order to escort uh, bombers and also provide, you know, say, obviously the, the springboard later then uh, into Operation Sea Lion. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the, the concept was that um, certainly as far as the Boltman Poly fight was concerned, as you just have German bombers coming over. The Boltman Paul Defiant would kind of like pull up alongside, if you like, and fire off volleys pretty much like the days of sail where you had, you know, two parallel lines of, of ships under sail, you know, blasting away at one another with cannons. Um, clearly, you know, all bets were off when the Germans occupied um, airfields in France, uh, making available um, the... Um, uh, the range of the 109 to, to come in and, and escort the bombers, and it all became altogether a different type of fight. The, um, the attrition rate, um, you know, I think it's always sobering, isn't it, to, um, to, to look back. And I think you can never really, you know, the, the, loss of, the loss of lives, so many lives and so many young lives um, is, is always... Is always still such a massive thing, even all these years later, isn't it? Yes, it, yeah, it, it really is. Um, uh, and how th these guys, uh, fighter command, and uh, and you know, and particularly a bit later in the war, bomber command, uh, could hold it together, um, you know, night after night, day after day, um, and go up there, you know, in the freezing cold, um, and, and and fight and and do their best and and come back. Um, it, it, I, I, I find uh, very, very moving, uh, very moving indeed. Uh, very, very special breed. I, <laughs> I guess it's very easy um, to sort of say at the moment with this wretched pandemic that the world is having to uh, undergo, um, you know, <clears throat> losing, um, you know, loved ones, friends, um, incredibly wretched. But at the bottom line, I guess, is all we're being asked to do is to stay at home. Um, um, what these guys uh, were asked to do was something way over and above, obviously, um, that. And uh, as you say, uh, Hans, you know, they were, they were so young. Um, my, if I might digress a little bit, my, my wife's uh, great uncle, uh, who 
he, uh, she never met. Um, Chris Baker was um, a flight uh, engineer on Lancasters serving uh, on one of the uh, Australian Air Force uh, Lancaster squadrons. And uh, he was about halfway through his tour, um, three weeks short of his 21st birthday, when they were um, uh, told that their target would be actually the very first night of the beginning of Operation Argument, um, what became known as uh, in the American Air Force circles or USAAF circles, certainly was big week. And um, the aircraft got airborne and the navigators soon realized that the winds that they'd been given by the Met briefing were way out and they had a very strong tailwind which meant that they would have to lose time before crossing the Dutch coast or before certainly hitting the target in order to hit the very tight time envelope that they were given in order to concentrate the, the, the destructive power of the bomber stream on, on the target uh, at Leipzig. Uh, so um, the pilot flew um, a, a number of racetrack patterns uh, in order to lose time as were several other Lancasters. And of course, this has flown at night. And in fact, um, we discovered that in fact, eight, eight Lancasters were involved in mid-air collisions undertaking these sorts of maneuvers in order to lose time. So eight seven-man crew lost before they even crossed the, uh, the, the Dutch coast, which I, I think, you know, makes makes the whole thing, you know, even more poignant, uh, dreadful. Uh, you, you know, you just cannot even think. Uh, uh, I can't get my head around that, that kind of loss over something like that, you know. It's, when, when you speak to people who fly Spitfires now, I mean, obviously they, they talk about, you know, how amazing, you know, this aircraft is, how nimble it is, you know, even now for something that's, you know, what, 85, mm. 85 years old. But they do sort of... They, they will sit there and say, you know, it's, it's easy to fly, you know, when you're just, you know, taken off from Biggin Hill or whatever. But, you know, now imagine doing this five times a day at night and being shot at, yeah. you know, and that is, you know, when it, it does, you know, hit home, doesn't it? it, it yeah, it, it really does. Yeah. It, it's a special breed, a special generation. Absolutely. I mean, have you have you been um, to um, a pub called the Eagle in Cambridge? Yes, I have. Yeah, it's quite a place. And I can also remember years ago when I was <clears throat> uh, probably um, somewhat below the drinking age, going into a pub uh, with an aunt and old uncle that lived over in Kent, where a similar sort of thing, um, the fighter pilots, um, various squadrons of that area used to meet. And there were, I remember, muddied toe prints or footprints that were on the ceiling. Uh, and that was one of the, the ways that, you know, they used to go out, you know, new crews, put a load of mud on their feet and turn them upside down and put a footprint on the ceiling, uh, you know, just a, a way of... Yeah, it's crazy. For those, if you're listening and you're wondering why I've just mentioned a random pub in Cambridge, let me just let me just explain why I've mentioned it. So, um, the Eagle, um, yeah, it's it's an amazing uh, pub if you are into historic aviation. It's where um, you know a lot of um, a lot of pilots um, used to go. I think in the Battle of Britain, and they they kind of burned the the name their sort of names and their squadron names into the ceiling using candles, and it's incredibly poignant and eerie in a way, isn't it? Seeing, hmm. seeing that it kind of, you know, such a, such an unusual, you know, 
piece of historical documentation you know in in sort of quite an incongruous setting but you can almost you you can almost be transported back can't you yeah. And, and, and imagine Definitely. a really sort of, that's really smoky bar and, you know, people just, I suppose, living in the moment, you know, ultimately not really knowing, you know, when they might be sort of, you know, called on next, but it's. Yep. There's another pub since we're mentioning one of my, another favourite subjects of mine, <laughs> 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 um, a, a pub in, uh, in the beautiful uh, little village, uh, Suffolk village of Lavenham, uh, similarly where um, USAAF um guys used to congregate. And again, um, as you say, Hans, going into these places, you, you do feel, almost, you know, uh, the, the sort of back of the, uh, the hairs on the back of your neck sort of tingling a bit. As, and you feel that, you know, there is, yeah, some, some kind of, yeah, feeling that you get a connection, if you like, with, with those, those past years. And it's something, you know, that if anything, you know, maybe will help us make sure, uh, you know, that we never, ever forget the sacrifice that those, those, young, uh, those young guys um, and, and ladies uh, serving uh, equally important jobs on the ground made uh, so that you and I could sit here in our um, um, comfy rooms doing this podcast, for instance. Well, quite. Um, uh, yeah, no, ex- exactly. Um, let me just ask you one, uh, one final thing, Paul. Now. Um, one of the uh, one of the joys of uh, being an author is, of course, you get to uh, you know sell sell your book online, uh, which means you also get to uh, have lots of people writing reviews. Now, <laughs> do you do you um, do you spend time or have you spent time reading your reviews? And um, if you come across any unfavorable ones, um, how tempted are you to uh, to contact them directly and uh, take issue with what they've said? <laughs> um. Okay, that's a, that's that's that, that was from left base that one, Hans. Uh, <laughs> okay, well I'll, I shall be open and honest with you. Um, I think, yeah, as I said earlier at the start here, really um, of our little chat today, um, which I've thoroughly enjoyed, by the way. Um, yeah, you don't do this sort of thing for the money. Uh, you do it for the, the love of the subject, uh, really, uh, and so you do tend to sort of pour your all into it uh, because it's something that, you know, a subject that's quite dear to you. That's why you're writing about it in the first place. So yeah, when you get negative reviews, yeah, you know, it, sometimes you like, ouch, you know, and uh, negative reviews are okay if they are uh, uh, contributing something, you know. I don't agree why you said it this way. What about that? You know, rather than just rather mean, spiteful, uh, little one-off comments um, uh, that, you, you know, um, that really don't add anything. You know, they're not helpful to me as a, as a writer to think, yeah, you know what, that's, that's pretty fair. And, and I, I look on the Amazon um, uh, reviews and, uh, you know, we're very fortunate. Um, we have, um, a, thankfully, um, about 85% of those that have read and bothered to write a review have given us five stars. Um, one, uh, there was one percent at one uh, of, of one star and there was one percent at two stars. Uh, but all in all, you know, yeah, it, 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 it's, it, it is useful. And I would never uh, take it upon myself to actually, you know, go off on a rant um, <laughs> uh, to people because, you know, as well, at the end of the day, you know what, um, it, it's their right to have their opinion. And I guess really sort of coming full circle, 
that's one of the reasons why you know these guys did what they did, so that we we you know we all could express our own opinions without uh, you know knocks at the door in the middle of the night and being hustled away. You know, taking it to the ultimate extreme. No, absolutely, absolutely. Well, look, I'd you know massively enjoyed this. Who could um. I could uh, I could spend several hours talking about this, but uh, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, this uh, year seven maths isn't going to teach itself, is it? <laughs> <laughs> but very important, very important. Of course, yeah. Is it exposing my weaknesses? Say, though, you know, if if we want to chat, because like you, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, this chat. We could just have a, a glass of wine, perhaps next time over it. Um, um, my big thing is the SR seventy one and the F one one seven. So maybe you know. One day, if you're at a loose end, we can have a chat about that sometime. Oh, absolutely. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, well, look, thank you very much for your time, uh, Paul. Uh, just to remind you yet, to defeat the few, the Luftwaffe's campaign to destroy RAF Fighter Command, August to September 1940. Um, available now, pretty much pretty much everywhere. Osprey Publishing, on the internet at large, I think it's fair to say, Paul, isn't it? You know, so... Um, it is, yes. There you go. And uh, thank you for listening to the Fly Pass podcast as well. Uh, you can uh, listen to this on Key.Aero as well as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anything that does podcasts you can hear us on. So um, tune in again next week. See you later. Take care, Hans. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.